Farewell deftly captures complicated family dynamics with a poignant, well-acted drama that marries cultural specificity with universally relatable themes. That's the uh, recap to The Farewell. Right now, the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is one of the best pictures of the year. 99% on the tomato meter. Unbelievable. The review so far that film has gotten. We'll be talking about that one today on the podcast. As always, thank you so much for checking this out. Subscribe, rate, review. I begged all of you. I implored all of you. Just find two or three people. Subscribe. Tell them they don't have to listen. Just subscribe, unsubscribe, subscribe again. I talked to my man, Joe. Joe, did the numbers see a skyrocketing after I implored all of people to help out? Not this week, but we're, we're getting up there. We're definitely <laughs> elevating right now. We're on our way. We're at base camp, and we're headed to Everest. All right, so as Joe said, listen, all of you basically ignored me last week. I wanted Joe to make it clear you all ignored me, so please help a brother out, okay? Do it for the kids. Do it for the family. Subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, rate, review. Now, there was definitely a call to arms of the rating and reviews. So I see at least 10 reviews here, so thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you to DeChamp. I was a fan of the previous incarnation of Cinephile. I'm ecstatic. It's back. Appreciate the new gimmicks of Mount Rushmore and Bada Binge. While I don't always agree with Adnan's movie takes, his knowledge and love for movies and even fantastic Classic television is unquestioned and quite deep. Thanks for the comeback. I listen every week, so thought I should show the love. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Charlie as well. If you like movies, and who doesn't? This is a must-listen podcast. Adnan's humor, passion, and knowledge make every episode thoroughly entertaining. The guests are always interesting. The Mount Rushmores are great for debate, and the Bada Binge is perfect nostalgia for Sopranos fans. Do yourself a favor and give this podcast a listen. Thank you so much. Seriously, keep the tweets coming. We appreciate it very, very much as uh, we try to spread the word here. Speaking of guests, Ben Mankwitz is on today. God, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's a host on TCM. You've known him for years there. Also hosts a podcast, Breakfast All Day, with our friend Christy Lemire, former guest. Used to be What the Flick. It's Breakfast All Day. He's also on Twitter at BenMank77. He's right now featured in CNN's The Movies, that great documentary series. Ben is all over it. So if you've been watching it, you've definitely seen Ben. And he gives us his thoughts about 70s films. His favorite 70s filmmaker, which I think is one that is uh, a little bit off the beaten path. It's not the one you might expect when you think of uh, the major 70s directors. But it's a good pick. He also talks about 90s movies. And he has a hilarious, seriously, he has a hilarious Quentin Tarantino story. Interview QT for an hour and a half. It's a great Tarantino story. And talk to my man Scorsese about the Irishman, his career, film preservation, etc. So Ben Mankiewicz is coming up. Before we get into the farewell, though, I did want to talk about a couple of great episodes of dramatic television, which I indulged in again. One of which is Ozymandias. That's Breaking Bad's final season. I believe it's the third last episode. And also 5-0, which is on the first season of Better Call Saul. Both of these episodes are gripping, taut, and intense. Ozymandias is the favorite episode of creator Vince Gilligan. It features some memorable moments, including Hank when he does. Oh, spoiler alert, by the way. By the way, I think we will do Breaking Bad. Once we run the bottom binge, might go with uh, Breaking Bad as far as revisiting series. I'd love to watch the whole thing again. But some memorable moments. Hank's dying words as he tells Walter White, you're the smartest man I've ever known, but you're too stupid to know this guy made up his mind 10 minutes ago. Then he gets shot. Unbelievable scene. In slow motion, you see Walter White fall to his knees, uh, wailing, presumably, otherwise you can't hear the audio. Shades of uh, Pacino, in fact, in Godfather 3, when his daughter gets killed and Coppola just cuts the audio and you see Pacino scream and then the audio comes in as he screams. Uh, other than the memorable moments, Walter tells Jesse he saw Jane die, did nothing to about it. God, it's cruel, it's chilling. There's an explosive confrontation at home as Skylar takes a knife to Walt. Uh, 
obviously Walter has to defend himself as he's they're on the ground wrestling around. Walter Jr. tackles his father, calls number one, and Walt says, "What's wrong with you? We're a family." Which I got to admit, at the time was impactful. When I watched it again, it's a little bit cartoonish. Not Cranston's delivery, just the line itself. But then he says it a second time. He said, "We're a family," and that's where the delivery is stronger and it gains pathos. He then kidnaps his own daughter, and you see Skyler wailing in distress. I mean, that that is about as brutal an episode as you get for Breaking Bad and as brilliant as you get as well because this is a show ostensibly the guy keeps saying I'm doing it for my family but there you see he's a total drug dealer and it's an absolutely broken home which is the result of his actions later he calls his wife in an act of nobility so that she's not incriminated he plays up the version of himself as a tyrant you know he calls her a bitch and he tells her about this is my business how dare you etc um god it's really well acted though by uh, by both actors because you know I mean, she's from from Skyler's point of view. She she knows that her husband's basically saying goodbye, and he's just being being doing doing sort of very nasty way. And she stopped loving him years ago, of course. But I think there's a small hint of her appreciating what he's doing, and, and clearly Cranston by his delivery. Once the tears are coming down his face, you know he hates having to do this. He's filled with self-loathing, but he realizes he's saying goodbye to his family forever, and in a way to help them, he has to be as mean as possible to her. Also, when the baby says "Mama" after being changed by Walter, that was completely unscripted. Amazing to read that. That's total TV magic. So if you've never seen Ozymandias or Breaking Bad, we'll be talking about that <clears throat> later here on Cinephile. And 5-0 is a great episode as well. Mike Ehrmantraut escaping Philadelphia, meeting up with his daughter-in-law and baby to begin a new life. This is all about the tragedy of losing his son, his culpability, including a scene at the end. It climaxes with him telling his daughter-in-law, I broke my boy. He's just haunted by guilt and sorrow. He's awash in those emotions. I thought for sure Jonathan Banks was going to win an Emmy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Did not. But when Peter Dinklage won, he did mention how good Jonathan Banks was. And uh, it's one of the best episodes. I think it's the best episode of Better Call Saul. Even though Saul's not involved, it's all about Mike Airman Trout and his backstory. Really, really great stuff there. Uh, also, I watched uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. New season here. So Eddie Murphy is the first episode, 41 minutes. He says, here's the big bombshell. He tells Jerry he will return to stand-up at some point. It's got to be the right time whenever he uh, you know, is motivated to do so. But he says the one regret he has is that that muscle atrophied. He said, if you don't develop it, you know, after a while it goes away. So he does Delirious and Raw, which are completely touchstones, but then did movies, then nearly didn't, you know, sharpen that comedic muscle. So now to get it back in shape, it would take some time. But he did say he wants to do it at some point. Uh, he comes across a very happy guy, enjoying family life. He's got three kids at home. His other kids are in their 20s, but he said his house is mission control. He loves nothing more, just hanging out with his kids, doing nothing. He tells stories about Richard Pryor being insecure and intimidated of Eddie Murphy. Uh, apparently Pryor found out Murphy would be at a comedy club there to watch Richard Pryor, and Pryor would say, I'm not going on. He was very insecure about the whole passing of the torch. In the meantime, Eddie revered him. He was like, you know, goo-goo dolls at him. So that was interesting. And also the arrogance of Bill Cosby, who, um, of course, Eddie ripped on stage and raw. But it, just the fact he was telling him how to do his act. And even Seinfeld is just appalled. He's like, who did Bill Cosby think he was to tell you how to be funny? Like, you know, obviously Cosby was a comedic great. And as we all know now, a horrific burst. But why not let Eddie Murphy just do his own thing? Um he also does a great Tracy Morgan impression as well, Eddie Murphy. So check it out. Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. That's on Netflix. Ricky Gervais is always funny. One of my favorite comedians. It's a two-part series with Jerry, one of which is about a potentially offensive Chinese joke, whether or not they should keep it. And also a good riff on religion in which the punchline is, guess you had to be there. But my favorite of the group is Martin Short. I think he's so naturally funny. You know, Martin Short isn't a guy who says, okay, what's his best movie? He's not like, you know, it's not like you're running out to see Inner Space or Father of the Bride. Jiminy Glick, I think, was funny, but it was cult. But he's a guy who's just naturally funny. 
funny. Every time you see Martin Short, he makes you laugh. He's one of the best guys I've ever seen on talk shows. If you ever see him on, <coughs> it doesn't matter whether it's Conan or Kimmel or whomever, he's always so funny and he comes and brings lots of energy and, and humor. And part of what it is is he's so quick-witted and has that acidic tongue. You know, one of his friends said to him, he says in the episode about Jiminy Glick, he goes, finally you found a character who's as mean as you are. He's actually a great guy and very nice and funny, but he's got these mean instincts. So he says it with a big smile and he's got that Martin Short face, but... It's just so quick. His, I think his wit is just so quick and so naturally funny. I think, and even Dan Aykroyd, my buddy Cabby's podcast, um, you know, Cabby asked him, you know, who was the funniest of all those guys, the 70s comedians? And Martin Short tells stories about that crew together, you know, Catherine O'Hara and John Candy and Eugene Levy and Victor Garber. And Aykroyd said, oh, it was Marty. He said, Marty Short was the funniest of all of us. He would get us on the floor. He also tells a great Bob Newhart joke. Martin Short's talking about great jokes and great joke writing. And he said, Bob Newhart has one of the best jokes ever. He said uh, to the crowd, you know, I don't want to offend, no, I don't want to denigrate country music. And for all those in the audience who love country music, denigrate means to put down. <laughs> he said the whole crowd went crazy. It's such a good, good joke. So well written. I just got, God, Martin Short's great. Check it out. Matthew Broderick's not bad. Uh, they go to a Mets game, which is kind of cool. I like the fact they love baseball. And Seth Rogen's in there as well. Joe, have you had a chance to watch Comedians in Cars getting coffee, the new season? Any thoughts on the show in general? Oh, I love the show in general. So it, you really get a peek behind the greatest comedians of our time. Uh, I haven't seen this new season yet, but just, you know, in past seasons when he's talking to someone like Jim Carrey and you really get a behind-the-scenes look at who Jim Carrey really is and how he how he is today. And, like, you get to really get an inside look at where these comedians are in their career. So I definitely got to check out the Eddie Murphy episode. Yeah, the Carrey one was really good because, you know, for a guy who's so funny, he certainly has had a lot of demons. You know, his ex-girlfriend commits suicide. Um, you know, he's spoken in the past about being if not mental illness or bipolar, definitely having some manic highs and lows. And, and he's so brilliant. Like, to me, the, the comedies of the 90s, that era is defined by Jim Carrey. And you're right, to see him now, you know, he's got a Showtime series, Kidding, which I didn't care for. I watched about half the season, thought it was all right before I punted on it. But he loves his painting. He spends, God, an inordinate amount of time painting. That's so cool when, when he invites Seinfeld in his house. He shows him his painting. He's obviously very wrapped up in politics now as well, via Twitter and his paintings as well. So I agree with you. It really shows a different side of these guys that you don't often see. All right, Tom. Time for the featured movie before we get to uh, Ben Mankiewicz and some entertainment news. That would be The Farewell. It's from Lulu Wang, the tender story of a family reuniting. So Aquafina plays the central character. She's excellent in the movie. Uh, born in China, now lives in New York along with her parents. And they're shielding her from a secret, which is that Nai Nai, her beloved grandmother, is dying. And the grandmother doesn't know either. And so they're all going to go to China uh, to celebrate a pretend wedding of one of her cousins. And so Aquafina can't bear to not be there. She ends up surprising Nai Nai by showing up. Her parents didn't know she was going to come. They're worried she's got enough money to be able to afford it because she's you know barely scraping by in New York. But she's there, and they've got to keep it away from Grandma that she's dying. And you can just imagine being with somebody you love more than anybody, and yet they've got only months to live, and they got this whole pretend wedding, so you got the ruses up. So. I thought the movie was poignant and resonant, and it's uh, deeply personal yet relatable. You know, I guess in Chinese culture, you know, <clears throat> the mother of Aquafina is telling the story, saying, listen, this is what happens. This is what we did for Nai Nai's husband. You know, she pretended herself. She didn't even tell her husband that he was dying until it was too late. You know when the end is near, and that's when you can do it. Right now, you got six months to live. It's too soon to tell them. Three months to live, too soon to tell them. 
which is a crazy way to do it. And even Aquasuda says, listen, in America, we'd be in prison. Like, you can't do this. A doctor has to tell the person the truth. And here, the doctor, you see, once he's blatantly lying to the grandmother, the matriarch of the family, and the rest of the family members are complicit in this lie. And she's really struggling with how to deal with this. Um, I did think the film was a little bit, a little sitcom-y at times. You know, is she going to find it? Is she not going to find out? But I did think um, it wasn't overly well dramatic, some, some well-placed humor where it was, and an unexpected ending, and certainly was poignant. And I, I will say, I think if you're close to grandparents, that will help as well. I didn't have much of a relationship with mine. My dad's uh, mom passed away when he was two. My dad's dad died before I was born. My mom's uh, mom passed away when I was seven, didn't know her that well, and mom's dad passed when you know I was 13, so at least I had a bit of a relationship with him. But I think if you're very close to your grandparents, and the farewell may even hit the mark even more. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, certainly gotten the rave reviews, um, and we're going to try to get Lula Wang on the podcast at some point, so we'll see what we can do with regards to that. But um, it's uh, certainly a film that I think, Joe, is going to be talked about, perhaps come awards time. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I'm excited to see Aquafina in a serious role, too, and how she can carry the movie as the star in a drama, because she's always been, at least to this point in her career, kind of the, you know, the funny minor character that everyone really likes. So I'm really excited to see this. And you're right. I, it's such a relatable topic. Death is something that all of us have to deal with, and we all deal with it in different ways. And this movie seems to offer a really unique perspective on it. Well said. Some entertainment news before we get to Ben Manquitz. Fleabag dominating TV Critics Awards. My friend Claire Atkins still listening. She was so great in the previous incarnation of Cinephile up in the air with Claire. She said if she was still in Cinephile, she'd be talking about Fleabag. Well, apparently she should be a part of the Television Critics Association. 35th Annual Awards crowned a critical darling. Fleabag, only multiple winner during the awards, taking home the prestigious program of the year prize, earning wins for Best Comedy Series and Individual Achievement for On-Screen Role. The show, which Walter Britt says will not continue after season two, when in all three categories in which it was nominated. Also, Russian Doll tapped as a standing new program after the comedy went to the night with four nominations. Uh, other winners include Michelle Williams' individual achievement in drama for her role on Fosse Verdon, HBO Big Night, last week tonight with John Oliver winning the prize for achievement in Sketch Variety Show, second year in a row, while leaving Neverland, which is brilliant, nabbed the prize for achievement in news information, and Chernobyl was named Best Movie or Miniseries, as previously announced HBO's Deadwood, and creator David Milch recognized with a Heritage Award and Lifetime Achievement Prize. Deadwood, of course, returned earlier this year. Um, great, great show, and we discussed it previously on Cinephile, so good to see those nominations and the those awards coming to fruition. Congrats to all the winners there. Joe, have you had a chance to see Fleabag or Russian Doll? Any of these shows here? Love Fleabag. Really hate Russian Doll. Everyone I talk to who's seen Fleabag, I've seen a few episodes, and uh, I met Phoebe Waller-Bridge once, and she's the nicest person in the world, and it's such a good show, especially now as we march towards the Emmys next month. Um, Russian Doll, I just couldn't get. I'm not the kind of person who gets distracted by the fakeness of a plot line, but this one I couldn't get past, mainly because I live in New York. These people are artists, and I'm like, how are you affording an apartment in Alphabet City on your salary? So I couldn't get past that. <laughs> I like the reasoning. Now now I have more reason to check it out, just see if I can join in the disdain for it. Uh, <laughs> other news, once, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, Tarantino's film, uh, talking with Netflix about a four-hour cut of the film as a series. That was a rumor that had popped up. Netflix, many free, someone's in the future. Um, 
It appears more than a rumor, and in fact, something that will likely happen. Speaking on the podcast, the Mutual's actor Nicholas Hammond, who plays Sam Wanamaker, Tarantino's latest film, revealed there is in fact a longer version of the film coming to Netflix. He's obviously excited to see some of the actors who got cut returning in the new version. There was talk about there being a four-hour Netflix version as well because there were a lot of scenes he shot that simply couldn't make it in the film. The actor added the premises like that, just like his other film, The Hateful Eight. They just done a four-hour Netflix version. I think they're talking about doing the same. There are some actors like Tim Roth, wonderful actors who never even made it into the film. I mean, their entire roles got cut. The Netflix version will be great, too. As, as a Tarantino file, I want to see it, even though I was... Um you know, less than enamored of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What do you think in general, Joe, these ideas of the director releasing a film and then releasing a director's cut? I'm I'm really excited, especially in this case, too. Yes, because uh, there was a ton of actors who were cut out, but also, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I kind of felt like there were a lot of scenes in the movie that were kind of unnecessary, and I would like to see a lot of the scenes that were in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of expanded upon. So I would, And also, I love Tarantino, so I would definitely be there for a four-hour miniseries on Netflix. I was about to say, I can't get enough of him as well. And you're right. Maybe my, my apprehension or my reticence with the film at times is the fact that I thought it was a little long or some scenes were long because they felt pointless. So you're right. The four-hour version actually may enhance the movie because I'll say, oh, okay, he's getting to this point or he's trying to illuminate this part of the character. Uh, also, a legendary scene removed from the Lion King remake, a film about talking animals for not being real enough. That's right. Those who have seen the billion-dollar-making homage may have missed a key scene in this newest version, specifically the moment when Simba speaks the cloudy manifestation of Mufafa's spirit in the sky. The new version involves Simba speaking to a non-miraculous cluster of clouds while James Earl Jones' voiceover chats back accordingly. Per an interview with VFX supervisor Elliot Newman, the new style of film didn't allow for quite as much imagination. It would have been jarring if Mufasa was suddenly standing up there in the sky because everything else is so hyper-real. John was always saying he didn't want it to be a literal thing and draw the perfect outline of Mufasa in the clouds. He wanted to have some build-up and drama so it would feel really epic. That's interesting. And also, looks like It Chapter 2 will be the first horror movie to digitally de-age its actors. The latest issue of Total Film director Andy Muschietti revealing that the young stars of It were de-aged for the brand new flashback sequences to the 1980s that will appear throughout It Chapter 2. After all, the young actors have each done some growing up and changing since the 2015 film was shot, so they're going to de-age the kids. I mention this, Joe, only because de-aging is a very popular topic after The Irishman, the... Um, brilliant new trailer from Scorsese's film in which the reason why it's $165 million is because they had to de-age Pacino and De Niro and try to tell the story from 30 to 70. So interesting to see de-aging will now be involved with a horror film as well. Yeah, I agree. And I guess it makes sense too because they don't, uh, I, I know you're not a Stranger Things watcher, but Finn Wolfhard in the last two years of his life has gone from maybe four foot seven to six foot one, something like that. So he, it, it makes sense that they would want him to be a child to this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting there what's happening with regards to it and de-aging. Now time for a great guest. Seriously, I say this all the time, but honestly, Ben Manquitz brought the heat. He was terrific. Take a listen. Frank Christie Lemire said, good luck getting Mankiewicz, because Ben Mankiewicz is a tough guy to pin down, but he has made time for Cinephile yet again, and he is a great guy. 
I'm going to give you the whole bio again. Born in D.C., son of journalist and Robert F. Kennedy, press secretary Frank Mankiewicz and Holly Mankiewicz, the cousin of the screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz, grandson of screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, great nephew of screenwriter, producer, and director Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the brother of NBC News reporter Josh Mankiewicz, cousin is filmmaker, television producer Nick Davis, who actually I met last year at the All-Star Game, did a great documentary on Ted Williams, which is on PBS. Uh, ben, of course, is the host of Turner Classic Movies, made his debut on TCM September of 03, also a podcast about movies, and he's also a prolific tweeter in which you can get his opinion on everything from politics to his beloved Oakland Athletics. Ben, a pleasure to catch up once again, my friend. Oh, my God, it's such a bummer to hear your intro and have the words prolific tweeter be included. Great. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, man, also, I mean, it's true, but, but I, it's a bummer. That's all. <laughs> but it's, it's a great combination of snark and wit. Like, you know, well, as you, well, I think your bio used you. to say, right, you're, you're the best at reading prompter of anybody you know, unless you know David Muir. I think it still says it. I was so pleased by that line, and my brother showed it to to, to David, and uh, he he was he was amused. So that's good. <laughs> well, I know how busy you are, and I appreciate you making the time. And I want to talk about CNN's The Movies, which is a fabulous documentary series. I remember growing up, Ben. I'd get so excited when AFI would do their lists. Right, this was probably in the nineties. I remember it would be AFI hundred comedies, AFI hundred musicals, AFI hundred whatever it was. So as soon as I heard CNN was doing this documentary series, I saw oh, this is great. This is harking back to my youth, and of course. As sports guys, you know how much we love lists. And then you pop up, and I saw even better. There's my buddy Ben talking about a variety of things. You made observations about how Nurse Ratchet is so perfect from Louise Fletcher. You mentioned how Shawshank Redemption is the most perfect prison movie and all the elements it has in that. So obviously you're well-versed in film history, no, because of uh, your life at TCM. But it's been great to see you on the CNN series. I want to start with the 70s. This is my favorite decade of movies. Now, I know the 50s are the golden age, but you and I both know the 70s are special because that's when the directors really took over and we're able to have that auteur imprint within studio filmmaking. And you got Scorsese making a, a deeply personal movie like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. And surprisingly, Taxi Driver is a, a modest box office success. And Coppola can take The Godfather, which is a, a huge, roaring success, not only as a book, but as a movie, but also as personal themes. He can make a personal movie like The Conversation and Billy Friedkin movies and Bob Rafelson and all the rest of it. So give us a sense of the 70s and just how uh, crazy it was that the directors really did take over and put their personal stamp on these movies. Well, first, I'm going to object not to anything you said, but in general, maybe it's America, maybe it's human beings in general, our necessity to uh, round numbers off, right? You know, every list is a top 10 or top 25 and, and a top 100. And, and the 70s is not quite right to refer to as the decade that you're talking about, right? It didn't, it didn't know it was 1970 when the auteurs took over. So I really think of 1967 to 1976 as the most important 10 years of certainly American movie making. And I think that Bonnie and Clyde kicking it off. Yeah. Right. Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, 1967, Bonnie and Clyde, the graduate in the heat of the night, uh, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, cool hand Luke, you know, uh, uh, cool hand Luke was not nominated for an Oscar, but the other four were for best picture. And, and, and those actors in the movies I mentioned were, were the best actor nominees. And just th that, like we, obviously there's something different with those movies, right? As you mentioned, Bonnie and Clyde, I think The Graduate also. And then, and then in 1977, I'm not knocking Star Wars, but then Star Wars changes the landscape again, right? So we begin a different sort of era that kicks off with Star Wars. So I think that 1976 then, which ends with Rocky, All the President's, uh, all the president's Men, Network, uh, Taxi Driver, these unbelievable uh, movies is sort of the end of this amazing 
uh, a 10 year run that we had in American movies. And I would only add one tiny, two other words to that, uh, to include in your list of directors, but, uh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, you love yeah. The last picture show is one. Obviously, it's very special, and when you go back and watch it again. By the way, and this is going to completely go on a tangent here, and I don't mean to do this, but as you were saying that list, Ben, I was like, I just think of '76 and Taxi Driver is one of my favorite movies. Network is one of my favorite movies. All the President's Men is why guys like you and I revere journalism and appreciate the high standard to which they hold. And Rocky wins Best Picture. And every time what happens is people go, "How can you hate on Rocky?" And I go, "I'm not hating on Rocky." It's kind of like to your point with the decades. You go, "Listen, it's unfair to put things in a vacuum. It's unfair to say." oh, this is better than this because the whole thing is subjective. My whole point is this. I get that Rocky is impactful, and of course it spawned a franchise of great films, etc., but just the brilliance of Taxi Driver Network and all the President's Men, I can't get over how strong 76 was. Yeah, I mean, those three movies are now, we know, they're, they're better than Rocky. Now, Rocky makes us feel maybe, well, all the President's Men literally makes me weep every single time. I tear up, and I... I mean, I can be a fairly emotional guy, but I, 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 that I am moved constantly, and, and certainly with Robard's last speech to, uh, to, to you know, to Redford and Hoffman, you know, about go home, take a shower, get 15 minutes of rest, get back here. Only the fate of the free world depends on what you do. Um, so, uh, I, I, yeah, those and network, it doesn't get that network, but so I can't even compare network. I, I can't even make a distinction between network and all the presidents. Man, I, I love them each too much. So lists are maddening because whatever is eighth on a top list, people are outraged that you put seven things ahead of it. And you're like, eighth is amazing, right? The Buffalo Bills <laughs> were amazing. They went to four straight Super Bowls. The Minnesota Vikings, Bud Grant was amazing. They went to four Super Bowls. I know they lost them. doesn't matter. They were amazing. Yeah, it's uh, of that area you mentioned, though, like I I particularly am struck by obviously Pacino and De Niro and their authenticity. But it was it's awesome. Like when you were talking about Cuckoo's Nest, you realize how perfect Nicholson was for that role. You mentioned The Graduate, which I mean, now I don't even realize when I watched Rushmore again, I said, of course, it owes a serious debt to The Graduate. And of course, Wes Anderson's paying homage to it. And that scene where where Bill Murray goes underwater. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like the opposite of a Benjamin Braddock from like 30 years ago. So it's always amazing to see parallels. Your, your favorites of the 70s would be, you mentioned Bogdanovich. I'm guessing he's one that you have special allure to? I do. I mean, I like Peter very much, and he's led a, a, a brilliant, complicated, tragic, uh, arrogant, uh, self-realizing life. Um, and uh, um, But, you know, Picture Show, those first three movies, you know, um, Picture Show, What's Up, Doc, Paper Moon, you know, it really, it's amazing, you know. Um, uh, and then the movie he had, the 79, which feels more like a movie from 75, which everybody listening to, which I'm sure many people who listen to your uh, show would agree. You know, St. Jack um, uh, is great. It's really, really, really good um, uh, with Ben Gazzara. Uh, you know, uh, unquestionably worth seeing and sort of, again, feels like it was from a slightly uh, earlier time. Uh yeah, but I mean, I just think he belongs in that group. I mean, you know, again, Newsweek said about Picture Show when it came out that uh, it was the most important uh, uh, film by an American director since Citizen Kane. Like, you know, it yeah. was a, 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 I mean, it's a really, really impressive movie. Well, it targets his his actual debut film, 68, uh, sort of based on Charles Whitman, the, you know, terrible to be talking about it at any time, but particularly in, in light of what's happened, Charles Whitman, the mass shooter in Austin. And, and Peter sort of did a movie about that, not recognizing, of course, in any way, what would happen here in America. Um, but it's a really, really, really good film. Um, 
so I just think, yeah, when, when, when these directors were turned loose, uh, uh, they were brilliant. And then, and then when the, again, as the studio system had sort of crumbled as it's sort of, as money guys were putting things back together and star Wars comes along, then they realize, Hey man, we can't just throw money at these directors. We're not going to waste $40 million or $10 million, $15 million, whatever it was then. And, uh, and lose money. So it sort of it went away in 1976, 77. And then the ones who were good enough to manage the system uh, and work the system in their favor uh, uh, continued, you know, uh, Scorsese, uh, you know, he figured it out. Right. I mean, you know, he had guys telling him to change his movies and what I'm told about him, I just interviewed him a, a, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, guys would, he would, un- he got pressure to change his movies and, he would do little things, but he basically played along, listened, told them, yeah, okay, yeah, for sure, I hear you. That's a great idea, great idea. And then he just did his own thing. And it, <laughs> so, you know, he, he had to, he had to, and same with, uh, obviously, same with uh, with Coppola. He had to know how to uh, massage the system to make it work for you. And that's why, uh, you know, Scorsese kept making uh, really sensational movies into the 80s, 90s, and, and this year. I mean, we're all looking forward to The Irishman. Yeah, let's talk further about Marty then, because I think about it, that's so funny the way you told that story. Because remember when Cassavetes saw Boxcar Birth on, he just said, hey, "Congratulations, you just wasted a year of your life." Like it's it's well made, but it's a bunch of crap. Like make something personal from from your personal history, and then it ends up spawning Mean Streets. But to your point, like I'm watching the whole documentary series, and again, I, I totally get CNN's you know up against it for time. You're going to focus on the the you know the strongest films or most memorable films. But I'm like, listen, I could have had five minute retro on King of Comedy, which at the time was a huge bomb, but now I think is a brilliant film, and with Rupert Pupkin and it's De Niro and Jerry Lewis and really was a you know a forerunner to celebrity culture. And then you mentioned The Irishman. I'm like, this is amazing the way that the movies have gone now, Ben. It's like the, the popular sentiment becomes, well, the best movies now are on television. And, oh, yeah, movies are either $150 million superhero movies or it's literally $2 million for Moonlight. But then you see The Irishman, you go, oh, my God, this, this like inspires you because you say it's a $165 million Netflix movie without superheroes. But clearly Netflix is investing it because they go, well, yeah, you got Marty, first time ever with Pacino, back with Bob, Joe Pesci, Keitel. Like the trailer gives me goosebumps. I'm going to go to the New York Film Festival and play a $1,000 probably to go see the movie on opening night, even though it'll be on Netflix a week later. He is such an inspirational figure within film. And most importantly, the question which I'm going to ask you is this, which is that he's a guy who loves movies and loves what you do at TCM. He has famously said he keeps TCM on all the time. Whenever he's editing, it's there. It inspires him, and, and he can quote movies at will, which I think might be his greatest legacy. When you watch Hugo, it's about film preservation, for God's sakes. Who else would make a kid's movie about film preservation than Martin Scorsese? I mean, really, the, the, his lasting legacy may not be his films. It may, it may be the Film Foundation, right? I mean, which is his organization dedicated to preserving film uh, around the world, right? I mean, and that's, a, that's become, you know, arguably the most significant film preservation organization in the country. And, you know, he didn't get in that for the riches. He didn't get in that for the fame, but they, they matter. Yeah, it's no question. Um, let's talk further about indie movies of the 90s. So the 80s, as you mentioned, studio system, you get the big, loud movies, and whatever, they're fun. Hey, you like Top Gun, power to you. But the 90s to me was awesome because then you get these indie movies, and I think back to movies that I love, like Sling Blade and Fargo and the Coen Brothers, how great they were, and Wes Anderson movies. But 99 particularly, Ben, I just read uh, Best Movie Year Ever by, uh, I believe it was Bill Raftery. And... Uh, terrific book. It just reminds you how great 99 was, whether it was The Sixth Sense or The Matrix 
Matrix or Election or being John Malkovich or Magnolia or Eyes Wide Shut. You know, you had these polarizing Blair Witch Project. You had these polarizing films, but it was almost like, you know, Y2K is coming. We don't know what's going to happen. Let's just jam all these movies in there. And you had this real creative force. Three Kings is a movie, you know, nobody mentions at the time. No, I love in, Three Kings. Right? Great film. What, what was it about 99? And, and for you, does it hold up as one of the great movie years ever? I know 39 gets cited, of course, because of, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz and Stagecoach and all the rest of it. But how about for you, 99, where does it rank? Well, first of all, 39 gets cited because, yeah, it was a great year, but you really have to look at like 39, 40, 41, 42. That was really an era, right? I mean, it was sort of random that those movies happened to come out in 1939, given how production schedules work. And 39 is cited because at the top of that list is The Wizard of Oz, which everybody saw and it meant something to, but that happened later on television. And then Gone with the Wind, which changed how movies were made. But, uh, you know, uh, I think you could easily argue that 40 or, or 41 were better. 99, you know, again, given the way movie production works, it's sort of what you want to look at is what was happening in late 97 or early 98 that caused all these movies to come out in 99 because they weren't made then. They were just released then in general. Some of them, of course, might have been in production in 99. Um, you know, I think so. I, I think it's random and I think it's fun to talk about. But yeah, there's 99 is pretty perfect. Uh, and you didn't even mention like... Um, uh, I think Office Space is 99. Yes, Office right? Space and, is that year as well. You're right. Great film. Yeah, and like that, no one, you don't think of that as this giant important movie, but but damn if that's not uh, an incredibly important movie that everybody knows and everybody cares about. Um, so anyway, I, I I I don't have a good answer on <clears throat> on why 99, but I I don't in any way uh, disagree. And also, you know, and, and again, and part of it's that you get Magnolia and you get another guy who loves TCM and keeps it on all the time at his home. Uh, you know, we sort of, uh, it wasn't uh, uh, P.T. Anderson's uh, first movie, but, uh, but it was, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, among his first and certainly uh, made it clear that he was uh, around to stay. Yeah, I love what you said. Uh, again, the CNN's The Movies this is the documentary series people can see on CNN Sunday nights at 9. Of course, it was preempted this past weekend because of the, the tragedies which occurred in El Paso and Dayton. But check out the next one, which will be about the 60s. But the one talking about the 2000s, you said when they showed the clip of There Will Be Blood, you said you can tell a Paul Thomas Anderson movie right away, just like a Stanley Kubrick movie, which is about as high a compliment as you can pay. And so I think of 99, Eyes Wide Shut, which again was polarizing. Some found it to be a real uh, dud and disappointment considering how much effort Kubrick had put into it, you know, over a year of shooting with Cruz and Kidman, etc. And then there were some champions of the film who could appreciate what he was doing. But I'm with you on Magnolia. I thought, and even now, I remember the time people that maybe he's going for broke a little too much. The Amy Mann, where everyone sings a, a lyric from Wise Up, the frogs climb from the sky. But I, I'm with it. And P.T. Anderson has even said, he said in the book, he goes, listen, it's, it's 20 minutes too long. I should have just chilled the F out and done some editing. But you talk about a guy throwing the kitchen sink. You're coming off of Boogie Nights, which is this amazing movie. Somehow he makes a movie about the porn industry. Yet it's a, about a family staying together, a surrogate family. And then he makes Magnolia, which is about fathers and sons and failures and crushed dreams and Tom Cruise screaming. And I mean, it was insane. Like, just speak a little bit about, Ben, how, how um, transfixing Magnolia was. Well, I think that mostly what interests me about Magnolia is what you just hinted at, is that this is a guy in, in Paul Thomas Anderson who who did not want to make the same movie twice. And I've done so many interviews, certainly two times in a row, uh, twice in a row. Uh, I've done so many interviews with artists who uh, are, it echoed what Robert Redford said. You know, he, he wins, he wins best, best director for ordinary people in 1980. Right. And it's his first time directing. 
he could have made any movie in the world that he wanted to. And he waited eight years and made the Milagro Beanfield War. Right. I mean, I imagine if Redford had wanted to direct an Indiana Jones like movie, he could have. Right. I mean, actually, you know, he could have done anything he wanted. And he was so conscious of being typecast early in his career as just a literally perfect, beautiful face um, that he kept challenging himself. And then he applied that when he started directing the Milagro Beanfield War, by the way, totally worth saying. It's a lovely little movie. Um, and I think that, that, that Paul Thomas Anderson is clearly motivated by that as well. Like you are not, I am not, maybe he thinks it consciously or it's subconscious, but you are not going to make me into a certain kind of director, right? I just made Boogie Nights. Well, guess what? I'm, I'm Tom Cruise is in my next movie. Right. Um, and, 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 and it's going to be a totally different kind of movie and it's going to be bigger. Right. I mean, I think Boogie Nights is this. Yeah, you could see it as a big move, but it's filled with these tiny, tiny little human moments, one after another uh, that turns it into a, a, a grander movie. And as you say, like like The Godfather, a movie about the mafia, it's really about a family. That's I think of Boogie Nights and The Godfather very much in the in the same way. And directors who took these big themes and turned them into small movies. So that's uh, what I sort of always have long admired, no matter what I think of each individual movie. And they're all worthy, every single movie of Paul has yeah. made. Um, but there is his, his unwillingness to fall into any type of subset. And the, I'm, I don't know what quote I used. I'm glad I compared him to Kubrick for the, you know, the Peter Bogdanovich's book, uh, talking to these great directors uh, from the golden age uh, is called Who the Devil Made It. And it's a Howard Hawks quote when he asked what you'd look for in a director. And Hawks said, you ought to be able to tell who the devil made it right early <laughs> on in the movie. Uh, and it's a great, great, great line. And I always think about it. And it's unquestionably true with Paul Thomas Anderson. You watch that movie and you're like, oh, I'm watching a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And not not in a, oh, this. You're thinking, oh, yeah, there's a there's a style. There's a pace. Um, that just feels uh, different, and 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 that is a, obviously a, a meant to be, and I hope is taken as a a, a a huge compliment. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. There will be blood. I think is his best, but of course it's always subjective. It's such it's a towering epic, and I think Phantom Thread was so funny. I was I was so glad that he made it because somebody had asked him, "When are you going to make a comedy again?" He goes, "I just did." Like it's this great, chilling, <laughs> dark comedy. It's so funny. Yes, and you know all of his movies, every single one of them, uh, uh, they uh, invariably uh, get better. Um, so I, I li- obviously I liked and appreciated um, Phantom Thread when it came out. Uh, you know, you mentioned Christie at the start of this interview, and you, I like literally knew how you two felt about it, and and I didn't have quite the same reaction. And then I see it again, I don't know, four months ago, something like that, and I'm like, yeah, okay, all right. I got it. I, I, uh, I got it. It's brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, and then I go back and I can't wish I want to go back and re-talk about it now because maybe I, uh, maybe I missed its, uh, uh, maybe I missed its brilliance. But anyway, I just, again, I like his, I like a guy who goes Magnolia, punch, drug, glove. I think the master, right. You know, yeah. that's a, that guy, that's an interesting, that's an interesting director. 
Right. Can't be categorized. By the way, Breakfast All Day is the podcast with you and Chris. It used to be What the Flick, so make sure you check that out. A couple more quick hitters. Of course, I could talk to you for hours, but I'll do a couple more. I, I have noticed, again, with the tweets, and you can follow Ben at BenMake77, the love of Soderbergh's out of sight. There's been several times people have said something like, hey, Desert Island movies, you're only five movies you can watch for the rest of your life. I think that was the tweet. Five movies you can watch for the rest of your life, and you had a few in there, but the one that stood to me was like, wow, he really loves out of sight. Like That was one of your five. George Clooney, J-Lo, Soderbergh. What is it about the movie that you find irresistible? Well, I love movies where um, guys do stand-up things for other guys, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind violence in movies. I, I'm having more and more trouble with uh, uh, cruelty in movies, right? Like, uh, and seeing people suffer. So it doesn't have that. Uh, and, and yet, it's, you know, it still, it feels alive and electric. But just what sort of the state, you know, how Ving Rhames and Clooney uh, do solids for each other, right? I mean, it's literally, it's why I loved NYPD Blue as a show. It was just a series of scenes where guys do the right thing, right? And they don't act like asses. Um, and then it's just, I mean, that script is uh, alive, man. And, uh, and it was, to me, sort of an introduction. I mean, Don Cheadle and Steve Zahn were working, but I didn't know them well, right? And instantly, within the first scene for both of them, you're like, what is this? Who is this actor? This, you know, uh, I don't, Steve Zahn is brilliant. We know now he's brilliant. Cheadle, obviously, is, I don't think anybody makes a, a, a realistic list of the top 20 or 25 working actors today uh, without including him, without including him. Um, and it comes from, and, and it did right by the source material, which I, which I loved, you know, I mean, uh, Anybody who loves dialogue, who's into the way people talk, um, loves Elmore Leonard. And Scott Frank, who wrote the screenplay for Out of Sight, got it. And, J and Jennifer, Lope, you know, Jennifer Lopez, there was no J-Lo then. She was just a this, you know, beautiful, talented actress. And those scenes, uh, you know, there is heat uh, between uh, Clooney and, and Lopez. And then the little part, Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina was so good. And Keaton is in it a little bit. And he's great. You know, uh, playing the same part that he plays in Jackie Brown, which is my favorite Tarantino movie, which is another good story, which I may have told you, by the way. I was interviewing nope. Tarantino and I said, I said to him, what's your, uh, what do you say to somebody? A long hour and a half interview with him. And I was like, what do you say to somebody whose favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown? <laughs> he looks at me for a long time and he goes, well, I'd say they're not a really big Quentin Tarantino fan. <laughs> I thought it was like, and then he, you know, and then he laughed and he's like, no, no, I, I love the people like Jackie Brown. It's just, it's least like my other movie. But anyway, that was a great answer. That is hilarious. Cause you're right. It's not necessarily yeah. that he doesn't like it. He just thinks, well, everyone else is the other one. So what the hell? He must not have seen Pulp Fiction or, or Reservoir, all the rest of it. Um, what's wrong with me that I somehow I had missed Dark Passage all these years? Bogart and Bacall movies, Key Largo, The Big Sleep, To Have and Have Not, and then... I was just scrolling through TCM a couple weeks ago. Dave Carger did the intro to it, and I DVR'd it, and I said, let me watch Dark Passage. I don't know how I've missed this. It was great, Ben. What a, I, I'm This is the greatness of TCM. You can just be flipping channels. You go, man, Dark Passage, Bogart and McCall. For those that don't know what it's about, uh, Bogart has uh, got a prison. I don't want to give it too much away, but he's out of prison. No, but uh, he, he, gets that, gonna, he, say, he, he breaks out of prison in the first, like, three minutes of the movie. Right. So okay, he, he breaks get, out of yeah, prison. And away, then yeah. what's... Yeah, the, the subjective camera, Ben's amazing. I had no idea. Like, the first 45 minutes is, like, all POV. That was amazing. That must have been cutting edge for its time. Uh, it was, and it was so cutting edge that 
like when Jack Warner finally, I hope I have the story right, but when Jack Warner finally sees it, he's like, hey, man, uh, this is the biggest star in the country uh, in Humphrey Bogart, and we don't see him for the first half of the movie. Out of of, no chance, no way, not happening. Uh, Fix it. But by then it's too late. You know, they're like, no, man, we didn't shoot it. Like, you want to reshoot the entire movie, right? Uh, Delmer Dave's directed, I think. And, uh, you know, so that was it. Uh, it had to stay. And now, of course, it's sort of it's this vital film because it, it gives us, again, half the movie just seen from Bogart's point of view, from this escaped prisoner. And then Bacall, who, who helps him again, and we see her helping him in the first, within the first four and a half minutes of the, of the picture. It's a really good movie, so make sure you check it out. As always, TCM gives us so much. Uh, ben Mankiewicz, I can find him on Twitter, at BenMank77. Breakfast all day. Used to be What the Flick, the podcast. Subscribe. Check him out on TCM. And lastly, is Matt Chapman yeah. the most underrated player in baseball? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess, yes, among them, because you don't hear enough about him. But, you know, it's you get, you, you get 8,000 people to show up when you're in the middle of a playoff race on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Uh, you know, Monday and Tuesday nights, you know, it, it, it's easy to, for the national media to uh, ignore what's happening in Oakland. But this has been a pretty impressive uh, two-year run. He is by far the best player on the team. You look how deep he plays at third base because the ball comes out so fast and so hard. It gives him so much more opportunity to scoop up everything. Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, I mean, he's in a little slump right now, but he's uh, uh, he's a game changer even if he hits 250 with 20 home runs. But he's not. He's going to be a... 260, 270. He's going to hit 35 home runs and play third base like Brooks Robinson. Movies, baseball, politics, whatever you want. Ben Mankiewicz is your source for that. On a personal note, Ben, after what happened with me at ESPN, my untimely demise, you were one of the first people to reach out, and I have kept all those messages safe. So I just want to thank you on a personal note for being a friend. One of these days we will meet up at Dan Tana's, and thank you for giving such great insight here on Cinephile. I would love that. Thanks, Adnan. Mount Rushmore. All right, so family movies. You know, this was a topic, obviously, because The Farewell deals with a family coming off of a very successful film about Asian families last year. In fact, Crazy Rich Asians. So it's funny, if you Google family movies, it comes up with, like, you know, Back to the Future or Moana. But no, no, no. We're talking about movies involving families. So my list, as always, I try to be a little bit different here, Joe. Meet the Parents, a great family comedy in which uh, Robert De Niro, of course, is not taking a liking to Ben Stiller, his son-in-law. I think it's got all the elements for great comedy and great farce and uh, excellent performances all around. I'm going to go with Little Miss Sunshine, which, again, is about a family on the road with a very precocious daughter who wants to be number one in the singing contest. you got a gruff grandpa, Oscar-winning role by Alan Arkin, Steve uh, Carell playing a very depressed guy. Um, it, just the whole cast is terrific. Honestly, I really like that movie a lot. Steve Carell and Tony Collette. I mean, seriously, the amount of talent in that movie, really funny, well-done movie about a very unconventional family. Speaking of unconventional families, The Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson's brilliant film, which is a real nod to The Magnificent Ambersons, which uh, informed his decision-making about making this movie. It's essentially about a bunch of people who are past their prime, and this family who used to be famous and is now, you know, dealing with the wreckage of what they have lost and with the fact that their scoundrel of a patriarch, Gene Hackman, 
is uh, telling him that he's all about to die, even though he's doing it as a way of bringing his family together. It's idiosyncratic and yet works brilliantly. And lastly, I kind of want to go with Boogie Nights because that's, again, about a surrogate family you wouldn't expect. But I'll instead go with Magnolia, the film I already talked about earlier with Ben Mankiewicz. It's about a dying father, Jason Robert, uh, and his son, played by Tom Cruise, trying to reconcile with him. As much as I don't like Tom Cruise at a personal level, I will admit his performance in this movie is great. The whole cast is terrific. John C. Riley is trying to make a connection with... Uh, you know, his paramour as well. Philip Baker Hall playing a guy with so many regrets. As he says, it's it's the regret that will kill you. Uh, those are my picks for the Mount Rushmore of family movies. Meet the Parents, Little Miss Sunshine, Royal Tenenbaums, and Magnolia. Honorable mentions go to Ordinary People, Redford's film, and Terms of Endearment, starring Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson, among others. Uh, Joe, how about for you? Family movies, any ones you want to throw in there? Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, I... Uh... I think this is the Mount Rushmore where we've had the most variation. Uh, Love Little Miss Sunshine, I'm throwing that on my honorable mention list, but Royal Tenenbaums, definitely on my Mount Rushmore. And then I'm going to throw the movie Chef with Jon Favreau, who it's about this father-son traveling across the country together making Cuban sandwiches. Lovely, feel-good movie. Big Fish, Tim Burton's last great film. Love that. Uh, And then I'm going, here's my sleeper, Vacation. Chevy Chase, 1980s, classic road trip movie with the family. Wally's World at the end, got to throw on vacation. Definitely a lot of fans of Chevy Chase out there. Big Fish, big fan of uh, Scott Van Pelt, the very noted ESPN anchor. He loves that movie, although I just can't go over the fact you see Danny DeVito's bare butt. The Butta Binge. All right, now time for the bottom binge as we forward through. We're in the season three right now. And by the way, thanks to all the feedback. Again, when I looked at all the reviews people have been posting, it was about four to one positive to negative on bottom binge. A couple were like, hey, okay, we got it. It's 10 years ago. You know, enough with the nostalgia. But apparently people are enjoying this. So I wasn't sure how the segment was resonating. Once again, you can review or you can tweet us, cinephile. Uh, pod, P-O-D, or of course individually, Adney and S. Frick, let me know. But for now, we're going to keep going because we're Season 3, Episode 8. Uh, Early Retirement uh, is the episode. He is Risen, in fact, is the title. Uh, and this one, honestly, is famous for the fact you finally get to meet one of the great characters in the show, Annabella Ciora, playing Gloria Trillo. She is a fellow Melfi patient. I'll read again from what has been a real resource for us here. Matt Zoller cites Alan Sepinwall's book, The Soprano Sessions. Striking and versatile New York actress of Italian-American descent, co-star of True Love, Cadillac Man, Jungle Fever, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and What Dreams May Come. Fans who wondered why her career never seemed to deliver on its early promise got an answer in 2017 when she said that accused serial rapist and sexual harasser Harvey Weinstein, co-founder of Miramax Films and the Weinstein Company, broke into her house and raped her in the 1990s, continued to sexually harass her for years after that, driving her away from show business. Ciara's star quality is undeniable here. From the minute we first see her in Melfi's waiting room, uh, working a potential sale on the phone, then joking that she's here because she's a serial killer. I murdered seven relationships. She's got both Tony and the audience wrapped around her finger. That is really well said because, honestly, you can't take her eyes off her. She is such a firecracker. This episode is also really good because focuses on Tony and Ralphie and the fact that Tony just hates Ralphie so much and he's upset because he disrespected the Bing and he wants, you know, Ralphie to understand that ultimately his hatred of Ralphie is about the grief and guilt over Tracy, a woman who's almost Tony's daughter's age who he kept at arm's length and he, he couldn't protect her. By the way, they also mentioned the book Art of War, which Melfi had mentioned to him in a previous episode, the ancient Chinese text embraced by CEOs as well as military tacticians. 
Its repeated citation by Tony and his fellow gangsters made it a popular phenomenon. According to the May 13, 2001 Baltimore Sun, publishers that put out translated editions of the public domain text saw 10 times the usual sales figures that year, had to order emergency reprints to satisfy demand. No question, the spurt is entirely because of The Sopranos. Sarah Leopold, publicity director for Oxford Press in New York at the time, told The Sun. Very interesting there. Also, as far as Ralphie, this is all you need to know about him. He says, it wasn't my kid she was con- carrying, confirming that the only value a woman like Tracy has is as a receptacle for seed or a bearer of children. Also, continually refers to her as a whore. Uh, the other episode, season uh, three, episode nine, the telltale Mutzadel. Got a great scene here where Tony's talking about an earlier conversation where Polly told him that snakes reproduce spontaneously because they both have male and female sex organs. That's why somebody you don't trust, you call him a snake. How can you trust a guy who can literally go F themselves? Don't know if it's true, but it's still a funny line. Also, you've got a Lady Gaga making her appearance. That's right. If you look closely in the pool scene with the aging family, you will spot a young Lady Gaga, then a 15-year-old actress billed as Stephanie Hermanota. Good to know there as well. You've also got uh, a scene here with, uh, again, Tony's getting way too in deep here with Gloria at the zoo. You know, she's an openly devoted Buddhist, but he just can't help himself. And now Melfi's starting to recognize, hang on a second, maybe these two clients, although she doesn't put two and two together, she recognizes something's going on. They may be involved in some sort of self-destructive behavior. And also season three, episode 10, to save us all from Satan's power. This is a Christmas special for people who hate Christmas specials. Very funny seeing Bobby Bacala dressed up as Santa Claus and the fact that Big Pussy used to be the guy that would do it. Uh, the scene that's really notable, though, is Tony explodes in rage at his daughter's boyfriend, Jackie Jr., getting a lap dance. He works him over in the men's room and tells him, you hit rock bottom twice. And as these guys write, Matt and Alan, Tony seems less offended by the other man's hypocrisy and moral turpitude than furious at the existence of the same sleazy, vicious, or self-destructive impulses in himself. It's like Tony is a leather-jacketed ghost of Christmas past going back to him. Later on, Meadow gives him that gift of the big mouth Billy Bassing and take me to the river. He can only hope to shrug it off. But some really strong episodes here. And next time here on Cinephile, we're going to discuss Pine Barrens, Joe, which, as you know, might be the most popular Sopranos episode of all time. So next time on Cinephile next week, the final three episodes of season three, including Pine Barrens. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that one, Joe. Oh, I do. I can't wait to get into it next week. All right, lots more coming up once again on Cinephile. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. Check us out. Spread the word. Thanks to uh, not only Ben Manquitz, but also my previous guest, Scott Rogowski, you can see on Change Up on DAZN. Uh, producer Anthony Jimenez, great guy. He's listening. Uh, Connor and Thomas are editors at MLB Network. We're working for DAZN. Those guys are awesome. So thank you so much for listening. Get all of our coworkers to listen. And lastly, Joe, I don't know if we can play it, but how about Costas rapping on Change Up? A big, ludicrous guy. Maybe the turning point was when my son Keith, who now, as you know, is with the MLB Network for the last several years. He's here with us tonight at Yankee Stadium. But when he was about 15 years old, he comes out of his room and walking into the living room, and he goes, Dad, Ludacris name-checked you. (laughs) So my first question is, uh, okay, who's Ludacris? (laughs) Then I find out that on his fine then CD, I don't know what it would be now, Fried Chicken and Beer, there's a, a cut called hip-hop quotables and one of the quotable lines of these quotable on television goes like this i'd be rolling torpedoes get blunted with rastas and for a hefty fee i'm on your record like bob costas yes! and it was at that point yes! boys that i i realized i had actually crossed over into a different realm everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium 
Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.